Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 272 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature writer Richard Clinn. Richard has written for many periodicals, including The Atlantic Magazine. He has recently released a new novel, a bit of fiction, titled Petroleum Transfer Engineer. We talk about writing, we talk about his book, we talk about politics, about Noam Chomsky and Neruda a bit as well. Great conversation with writer Richard Clinn today on the program. We have an EWSA by yours truly titled Hullabaloo and another beautifully crafted and wonderfully read original essay by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled Glad Rags and a poem, too, called Gladys. All of this, of course, will be infused with the energy of several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 272 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
hullabaloo. I sit back somewhat somber, somewhat at peace on my couch, listening to the breeze and the electric weed whackers spinning their fishing line, cutting down unassuming dandelion and such, as mine continue to grow. It is spring. I still have autumn leaves lying about. The grass is growing through, over, and all around those scattered leaves. They are detritus now. Payments for the mortgage, utilities, a new computer, college apartment. Maybe I'll limit my visits to the grocery store this week again. I'd like to ask the beautiful swan I've been with for a while something important and special. But I don't know how to afford the jeweled ritual that is tantamount to the cultural expectation of commitment and love in this town. Though the ritual doesn't speak that way to me, it does significantly to family, friends, neighbors, peers, and larger society. What is a man, this man, to do? All the hullabaloo as I sit back on this couch, as I listen, breathe, ponder, watch. Well, maybe it's time for a good meal and a beer. I will figure it all out, this bandying about, no doubt. The birds are chip-chirping away at the day as the depths of my existence are as malleable, steadfast, and eternal as balls of smooth, vital, bronze-brown, red clay.
qu'elle sees C'est le livre But I have to concede That wherever you are You're still driving my car Sticks and stones will break my bones But tears don't leave any scars So I'm alright I'm alright Richard Clinn, is that you? It's me. Hello, Mr. Conundrum. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tour, sir. It's a pleasure for me to be here. And uh, before we get started, let me give uh, the folks some background information, if you don't mind. No, absolutely. Richard Clinn is a writer. His fiction has appeared in Flyover Country Review, Akashic Books, Thursdays series, Writing Light Review, Jewish Currents, Box of Jars, Chronogram, The Copperfield Review, Adelaide, Poetica, Kindling Quarterly, and The Strange Recital Podcast. His essays have appeared in The Atlantic, The Forward, The Rambler, 1966, A Journal of Creative Nonfiction, Jewish Currents, Counterpunch, among others. Richard's reviews have appeared in The Forward, Brooklyn Rail, Gastronomica, January. His music writing has appeared in The Brooklyn Rail, Blue Coop, Counterpunk, among others. He has written profiles of the great Noam Chomsky, Russell Banks, Hugh Nesenson, and poet David Shapiro. Richard has done feature writing for Hudson Valley Magazine and articles for Human Humor, excuse me, Times. And he has a new novel just published in March by Underground Voices out of LA titled Petroleum Transfer Engineer. It is our pleasure to have Richard Clinn on Troubadours and Rock On Tours this go-around. Welcome, sir. Well, it's a very big pleasure for me to be included, and thank you for doing all this research on me, too. It sounds very impressive. It um, does. <laughs> <laughs> hope you haven't done too much research, you know, but um, I, I have no skeletons in my closet, though, not really. No, we'll bring up the skeletons later on, you know. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll okay, set sure. you up, we'll set you up and then hit you with that curveball, you know, and get you, you all shaken. And, you I know, that's it. good radio, right? Demoralize the guest and, and no, then yeah, get high ratings. I'm set for it, too. It's fine. <laughs> no, just kidding. I know. All right, let's get right into your book, why don't we? Because that's, I mean, March. That's a, that's a, new, it's a new publication. It's Again, a new publication, yeah. Petroleum. Sorry, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no. Petroleum Transfer Engineer is the title. Give us a little, you know, I guess, background on, on it. Uh, maybe what spurred you to, to create this story and such? I think, well, you know, it, 
it is not it's personal not autobiographical but i did grow up in south jersey um i did have a job at a gas station even though i have to insist you know it's a fictional creation it's not my life um i I think i wanted to show this very small sub-region that no longer exists um I think when people think of New Jersey, if they do think of New Jersey, there's an element of urban sprawl. And South Jersey really was a real tucked away little corner, um, almost as if the South or the Midwest had been grafted onto the East Coast. And it's gone. You know, it sort of disappeared metaphorically and disappeared literally. And I just wanted to tell a story. It's sort of as simple as that in a way. Um, I wanted to capture a mood and a place and you know there's a plot obviously but i think I, I wanted to display this little region that no longer exists why do you say it no longer exists richard i think a lot of you know i mean the past obliterates quite a lot of things um part of what happened in south jersey is what happened nationally i think that regional quirks have disappeared you know in this this didn't make it into my book but um, we were in the Philadelphia, South Jersey in the Philadelphia media orbit. There was a horror show called Dr. Shock, where this guy looked dressed as a vampire would come out of his coffin. Every city had that. I've spoken to friends from Ohio. There was the Dr. Shock equivalent. You know, all that stuff is gone. That's sort of a national occurrence for whatever reason. Some of these quirky regionalisms have disappeared. You know, in South Jersey, it really did happen. I think the casinos and development and time passing have really erased the localisms. Um, you know, it was quite, it was farmland to a large extent, South Jersey. Um, that's gone. You know, I, I, the sort of quirkiness is gone. The developments have sort of taken over. Again, it, it's sort of a national phenomenon. Um, you know, there's a big, I guess it's Pier 1 or Pier 9, some pier somewhere. Um, <laughs> I remember it as a duck farm, you know, way back when. So I think that there's that aspect I was trying to convey that, you know, the past is a foreign country. There's the metaphoric disappearance and the literal disappearance. You know, the the old lumberyard is gone. The duck farm is gone. You know, so, so I think I wanted to show that you can't really see, you can't see that South Jersey anymore quite literally. It sort of looks like every place else to an extent. So, And that that is a shame, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when you can go, I mean, some people, I, I suppose, myself included, feel it's a comforting thing when you travel around and and everything looks familiar because that way I guess you you never get out of your comfort zone. But yeah, in a way that's a negative I think in the larger scheme of things when when you don't have these this quirk quirky uh, sort of um, individual uniqueness uh, yeah. from one place to the to the next across the continent. Yeah, and I think you know it hasn't vanished completely. Obviously, you know, um, but I think there has been sort of um, an ironing out of quirky regionalisms and just simply local slang all the sort of the detritus of just day-to-day life has really been ironed out in a lot of ways and you know south jersey for real and south jersey in my novel you know again this is not a journalistic recreation you know i've taken lots of liberties um but again it's gone you know the rural aspects this sort of eccentricities i don't think that exists so much in this country you know and in some ways it's probably wonderful you Everybody can locate Bulgarian music on the web, you know? I mean, there's something yeah. something you would have been unimaginable decades ago, but you sort of lost something in a way. Um, and again, you know, I also, it, it's not a total nostalgia trip. You know, the, 
the characters, some of the characters in my novel are bigoted. You know, it's not just simply a mourning of a wonderful time past. You know, it's a very mixed bag, the way this country is a mixed bag. So in some ways, you know, certain things you're not going to mourn, you know, the so so that respect it's it's a little complicated i think you know what's uh, the time period is it is it the late 20th century or loosely 1983 very loosely um i so i wanted to show um a region really disappearing the casinos were coming in and that was the real beginning i think of the end of that little sub region and and i wanted to show that it's a real time transition like the character the protagonist francis finds himself working at this sprawling gas station off the atlantic city expressway um notices limousines are starting to arrive um i think he goes to try to find this old lumber yard that's disappeared so the, the first the bits and pieces of the end are starting to appear and i thought 1983 loosely 83 um is sort of a good a good center point in a way um that he, Francis, is sort of adrift, like his landscape is adrift. I sort of had it as symbiotic in a way that he is sort of in a period of strange transition and the region, South Jersey, is in a period of strange transition. So I, I thought that was a good um, delineating point, 1983. And where were you in your life in 1983 in terms of your development? How old were you? I was, you know, Francis is sort of roughly my same age. I graduated from college in 1983. Um, the big, huge difference is the my the real gas station um, was strictly a summer job for me. And at some point in my life, there was a kind of angst-ridden, drifting 20s experience, you know, um, where you sort of question everything, don't know what's going to happen to you. I, I sort of lashed that together with someone working at a gas station, you know, like in real life, it was strictly a summer job. Um, I sort of twinned that kind of existential angst. What am I doing with myself that I like to think everybody goes through, but maybe, maybe it was just me. Um, so that, you know, it, that's where it really deviates from my own life. Um, I you know, went to New York a couple years later. It's all the stuff that Francis, the protagonist wouldn't do, wouldn't or couldn't do, I think. And I guess uh, the the phrase, uh, the term petroleum transfer engineer is the position at the gas station. It's a position at the gas station. It sort of, um, it feels like something Francis who has short-circuited his academic career and sort of made a mess of his life and finds himself working at this gas station. It's something he would say. The words never appear actually in the novel, but it feels like a kind of quasi-funny sort of academic thing that he would do in a way he would refer to himself as a gas station attendant as a petroleum transfer engineer um it feels sort of funny and it feels sort of forced which i sort of felt was indicative of the protagonist i think you know i haven't read the novel yet i hope to but just based on what I've read and what you're explaining to me, what keeps popping into my head is something similar, and I'm you're your own writer, but in your own voice, but similar to maybe a Thomas Pynchon. Wow, I I don't think it's I'm nearly as abstract as Pynchon, um, but I welcome the comparison. That's really wonderful. You know, <laughs> thank you. Um, I think that Pynchon is sort of more dystopian more obscure uh, this is a little on a more human scale in a way like it's not the motivations aren't that odd somehow you know um but i i'll take the comparison i'm very yeah. happy compared to pension you know 
Oh no, I, I look forward to reading it. You have me compelled. Well, um, thanks. And and uh, the the uh, intersection of art and politics. It seems like there is one here, in a way. You're talking about. Um, a lot of social issues, which of course should be addressed by politics and and art. From from my perspective, is one of the mm-hmm. best ways we as a society can look at our challenges and our in our state of affairs. What do you think about that? I, I totally agree, and I think it's 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 a strange sort of American tick almost the idea that art and politics don't mix. I mean, I think that it's sort of axiomatic in the rest of the world that you will be producing art that is entwined with politics and it doesn't mean that it's an overt political screed um you know there is i think there are oblique politics in this book in my novel um there's the whole world of work that is sort of complete nonsense in a way um Francis returns home and finds his sister has become this sort of go-getting um, person doing ad copy for a local radio station. And just the minutia and the sort of gravitas of nothing. Like at some point, they um, the radio station's tagline is the Rockin' Wave. And there's sort of a debate, should they put an apostrophe at the end of Rockin' or have it as Rocking with a G? Um, so there's that, you know... I would like it to be political. I don't know if you could construe that as completely political, but there is a sort of absurdity of the work world in a way, um, the go-getting ad people, the very fact that Francis is somehow finding himself pumping gas. So, And there is a sort of um, marginalized community. You know, a lot of the people working at the gas station are sort of castaways, um, poor, uneducated, ex-Marines, Vietnam vets. So, that aspect is social commentary. And I think, you know, I certainly would like to do more along those lines. But I do think that art and politics um, are far from mutually exclusive. And, and I really do think it's probably a matter for a whole other broadcast. But there's something oddly American about that aversion to non political art. When I think in a lot of other parts of the world, most parts of the world, um, it's just accepted, you know. I don't think a Middle Eastern writer or a Central American writer would think for a second: is there a distinction between my art and political statements? Right, um, right. You think about a Neruda, right? Or you think, yeah. of, you know, there, yeah. uh, Salman Rushdie. This is some of the guys that can pop into my uh, Marquez. So, so many of uh, yeah. th- those great writers. Always there was a political tinge, a pol- political element to what they wrote, what they what they uh, delved into. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think it's it's um, <clears throat> you know it doesn't have to be mandatory either. You know, I think that art for art's sake, beauty for the sake of beauty, is perfectly wonderful. Um, you know, I, I don't see it as a something you have to do, but it's definitely there. And again, you're right. People like Neruda, I think, it would be a complete mystery why you'd even have this discussion. Are art and politics compatible? You know, it's like saying, does the sun rise in the morning? You know. Um, Israeli writers deal full force with political issues, you know, Central American writers. So there's an odd, like, American idea, I think, that art and politics are completely incompatible. And it's just not true, you know. Um, it's almost like you get punished if you go there sometimes. Like, oh, we, you know, we'd accept you. We'd, we'd support your work with our economic, you know, backing. But once you start getting political, now you're, you've crossed the line and, and we don't want yeah. to hear that. I, I think so, too. And there's also sort of the critical disdain, you know, that political art equals sort of a dull political screed, that it can't be artful, that either you're sort of shouting slogans or singing sort of exaggerated protest songs 
or you're creating non-political, beautiful art. It's just a strange, it's a dichotomy that doesn't really exist in the real world, I think. And I find it sort of especially problematic when this country is, you know, my God, the whole political system here, you know, <laughs> how could you not comment on it? You know? Right, right, exactly. The the East, you know. <laughs> um, and I think there is, you know, there's also, there is lots of political art. Um, you know, I think that, if you go hunting for it, again, it doesn't have to be a Pete Seeger song, which leaves no doubt, okay, this is a political song, but, you know, I think of Dos Passos as USA, you know, just mm. the list goes on and on of stuff that is wonderful writing, um, artful writing, and very, very political, you know. Um, I think, again, if you go looking for it, I remember being struck at some point when I watched The Godfather, you know, that how much it is... It's the American dream, you know. I mean, exactly. Saying they're climbing up the ladder, they're devoting their lives to business, you know. But it, there's sort of a perverted element to it, you know. So I think that that list goes on and on, you know. And I think that there's this odd shrinking away from that kind of thing where you can't. It's like the third rail, you know. Political art means something wretched and not political, uh, or not artful, rather, you know. So I think that yeah, there's something very American about that. Well put. Well, well put. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, we're talking to writer Richard Klin, and uh, we're reflecting on several ideas, but in the context right now of his new novel, Petroleum Transfer Engineer. And, uh, you know, you, you've also done different sorts of writing other than this is a fiction, but a somewhat fictional piece, but somewhat <clears throat> autobiographical, though you've uh, written... Uh, reviews and uh, profiles. One that mm -hmm. popped out to me was a profile you wrote about Noam Chomsky. Speaking of politics, oh uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was really a highlight, I have to say. And we I had contacted him almost out of the blue, and he, you know, staked out some time for us to see him. My wife um, Lily Prince is a painter and photographer, and we've collaborated a lot. And we found ourselves heading over to Cambridge and interviewing Noam Chomsky. Um, and it was really quite astonishing. You know, I mean, he's someone that I've, I'm not going to say worshipped, but I mean, certainly looked at as a guide for years and years. And then to be in his presence, I sort of had to sublimate those fanboy impulses, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, it's, it's Noam Chomsky, you know. Um, and there were certain moments where I was arranging my notes and recording what he was saying and i would hear his voice the voice that i've heard over and over again and realize that that's coming from that man next to me that's noam chomsky um so it was really it was really quite astonishing you know um i think there was also quite honestly this deep down feeling that way way buried that maybe he would be so impressed by my questions, he would sort of take me under his wing and have me <laughs> dinner and you know, sort of develop this relationship, you know, but of course that, that didn't happen really. You know. I'm really yeah. honest, you know, there's that, some others, we'd have this simpatico vibe and, you know, I'd come for Thanksgiving or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the case. Um, I could totally relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. I have to really... That was so buried, you know, I have to to be in the interest of honesty, you know. Um, yeah, but it was uh, it was amazing. I mean, he is he's amazing in general, I think. I mean, he's about 90 and yeah, yeah it was it was a real honor. And he's a, he's a linguist by by training, right? He's a linguist by training, which I, I find sort of more astonishing. It's almost like the political stuff is almost 
it's secondary. You know, he made his name in the linguistics world. I think in the 50s, he sort of took down B.F. Skinner, sort of the reigning god. Um, I know almost nothing about linguistics, by the way. So it's almost like this, the political stuff, which is quite extensive, is extra in a way. Um, so it's a, a really uncommon dynamic, I think, where he's renowned in linguistics and staked out this, this enormous political sphere also, too. So I think that's, that's really unique, I think. Where might we find this profile of Noam Chomsky that you put together? Uh, it's a webzine called January, um, where I wrote, I profiled Russell Banks and David Shapiro. I know you'd, you'd mentioned that at the beginning, January.com, and it should all be archived, you know. Um, but the Chomsky piece was, was really quite amazing, you know. Well, we, we have probably about six or seven more minutes. I'd like for you to share with us, you know, how, how you got to this position, uh, to this place uh, where you, you, you are a writer. What influenced you? How, how did this happen? I think it had always been, it was always there, but it was sort of too frightening to come to grips with in a way. There's just something about the idea that openly declaring oneself a writer would bring on like a lightning bolt or something. <laughs> I, I guess because it is a sort of very... Um, it, it sort of in some ways is really antithetical to my personality, but what you really are doing is saying, Hey, look at me, look at this writing. Um, I don't feel like I'm doing that, but that's what you are. You know, there's sort of an element of, um, it's not as overt as being a musician and being on stage, but it is sort of akin to that in a way. And, and just for me, it took a lot of fessing up in a way. Um, I'd worked in book publishing forever. I'd written, things in private from the time I was younger, you know, it, it somehow like putting two and two together and coming out and saying, I'm a writer. Um, it took a long time to do that. And there is, you know, in some ways for good reason, you get a lot of rejections, you know, it's a lot of, um, a lot of sitting around and writing and then writing again and then writing again and writing again, you know, there's a lot of real drudgery. Um, it's all the stuff people say that that is true, you know, um, you are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. I lived, we live in, in New York's Hudson Valley. I lived in Brooklyn before, actually. Um, and it was sort of a monastic existence at some level. You know, I would wake up early every morning to write, like every single morning. Um, so it's a, it's a hard life in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, I'm not going to do a song and dance about the suffering artist because, you know, it's not the case, but I think there's a lot of, it's a lot of fessing up on some level, you know? Um, and I think there's also, um, when you, when you say fessing up, you mean fessing up, uh, in, in what way? I think fessing up in every way, fessing up and this is what I want to do, fessing up and this is what's important to me. Um, like in other words, the, the novel, there's nothing, you sort of are laying it all out there, even though, like I, I said, I have to insist this is not the life story of Richard Clinn, you know, but it obviously comes from the heart and from sweat and from effort. And if people hate the novel, I can't pretend it won't affect me. If the novel does badly, I can't pretend it won't affect me. And I think there's something very intimate about writing in a way. You're putting something that you really care about out there for the world to like or disregard or not like, um, there's something very naked about it on some level, and I think it's it's hard to fess up in some ways. Um, I can't, you can't shrug it off. At least it's my feeling. You know, if somebody, if a petroleum transfer engineer met with scorn, I couldn't say, oh, you know, 
I didn't really care that much because I do care that much. Uh, I think there's something just sort of shockingly intimate about writing, even though if it's not strictly autobiographical, like you've created something very special that you've worked hard on and you're sort of putting it out there. Um, I, I don't find that effortless. I find it just the opposite, you know. Um, what would be worse, do you think? It just popped into my head. If if something you put out there, like this particular novel, was totally overlooked, no one made any mention at all yeah. of it, or it was, you know, ravaged by the critics. What would right, you, what would right. be worse? You know, that's a really, really good question. It sort of depends why it'd be ravaged by the critics. You know, I think there's that. If there was some kind of outrageous reason people were savaging it, <clears throat> excuse me, like it was so shocking. That'd be sort of wonderful, you know, in a way. If it was savage because the writing was mediocre, um, that'd be even more horrible in a way. Um, right, you know, I, then having it ignored is also horrible. All those things are horrible for different reasons, you know. <laughs> um, right now it seems to be sort of tilting toward the no one's paying that much, <laughs> that much attention to it, quite honestly. You know, I don't see... Oprah calling me or anything, you know. Um, What's well, so hard? Fun. There's so much yeah, out there. I'm sure there are brilliant novels that we've never ever heard of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to sort of take that element with a grain of salt, you know. Um, but I don't see reviewers falling all over themselves reviewing it, you know. Um, so there's there's that, you know. Um, but yeah, I think having it, you know derided by critics must feel pretty horrible too you know um probably in a, in a different way i hope never to experience all that quite honestly you know yeah me too i was just curious yeah. how what a writer i've asked that question a few times and it's always an it's a tough one to answer for certain um it, yeah i think there's, there's sort of that um <clears throat> both extremes where you sort of hope that there's going to be wild wild acclaim and fear wild critical derision but the reality is sort of this middle <laughs> where no one's deriding it but no one's exactly flocking to it either in a way you know well, um, even i've read critical reviews of of some other guests i've had in the past of uh, works that uh, that they put out there a, a playwright uh, uh, that we have we have on regularly her she put out a, a, a new um a, two years ago a new production uh, that I, I read the the critical review and I thought it was decent. I didn't think it was great. Mm -hmm. And uh, I talked to a friend of mine who actually he's our associate producer, Dr. Pavise. He mm -hmm. he is uh, he is a trained uh, reviewer, and he said, mm -hmm. no, no, that was a good review. Uh, it, they're never wonderful, over the top, or, or rarely are they. Right. And right. that particular production won the Pulitzer this year. You know, so what? You know, uh -huh. reviews yep. uh, they're rarely going to be over the top 100% you're an amazing brilliant yeah, right right you know. yeah um i think the the ugly fact is no one's thinking about you that hard you know that's, right that's, the reviewer is not probably thinking this is a masterpiece it's changed my life you know um you'd like to think that they probably have millions of other things to review and things to do also you know i think that's that's a sort of gritty reality in a way you know there's sort of this dull middle somehow you know um much as we'd like to think otherwise plus how good would they be if they told everybody they were amazing fantastic that's their job you know they have to... <laughs> yeah i know i know that's i mean there's certain reviewers who are like that like i remember gene shallot i guess from the today show who every review was just superlative and you sort of wonder if they're on the pr payroll somehow you know right 
there's that that aspect too, you know. And you've done some reviewing as well, I, I presume. Yeah, right? lots yeah. of it, lots of it. Um, and then you try to you, you you don't want it to sound like a blurb. I think that's exactly your you've hit on something. You know, it would be sort of it would sound like puffery if one wrote this is the most amazing thing that I've ever seen or read or whatever. You know, I, I don't think anybody would believe you really. You know? No, no. Now, uh, before we, our time runs out, Richard Klin, please share with us um, maybe some contact info so people could find your work and keep up with what you're doing in the future. And maybe share with us what you do have planned for the future. Um, you know, sort of what I have planned depends on the gods of publishing. You know, um, I have another novel sort of on the horizon, and I have a collection of short stories that I just finished also, too. So that what happens to that sort of is beyond my control. Um, I have a website that I've started with my really rudimentary technical skills. It's www.richardclin.com, um, K-L-I-N. And the book is up on, the, the publishing company is out of LA. It's called Underground Voices. Um, the book is on their website. Um, it, the book is available on Amazon. I have a Facebook page. You know, I'm, I'm around should anybody care to get in touch, you know. And uh, I can't wait to read it. I really am compelled. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's nice of you to be so interested. And I hope you like it also, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I will. I'll let you know. Okay, good. Yeah. Write me a scathing review and we can discuss how. <laughs> I'm not qualified. <laughs> I'm not qualified. But... You know, I'll tell you what feels worse. You know. <laughs> now. Um, before we go, if you, if you like, uh, share a little insight for those listening that are aspiring writers or artists or confused with the, 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 the state of affairs in our country, whatever you like, maybe a little, a little tidbit, a little insight. I'm confused with the state of affairs too. Uh Oh, this, the, the onus is on me now. No, I, I think in terms of writing, um, every cliche sort of applies you have to sit down and write. And then people have said that a million times, but it really is true. There's no waiting for inspiration to strike. Um, I mean, this stuff sounds like out of a writing primer, but it, this happens to be true. These are cliches that are accurate. You really have to write, you know? I mean, writing doesn't come from sitting around to give an idea. It comes from writing and what's a quote from Beckett, fail again, fail better. You know, I mean, this all sounds trite, but it really is true, you know? And I think that... It's often not possible for those of us to set up two hours of unfettered writing every morning. I mean, there's something, you know, that's, if you have no obligations whatsoever, so it's hard. It's hard with family. It's hard with work. Um, you have to set out a time to write, and you have to write over and over again. And that's that's pretty much it. You know, it's that's it. That's a little, and that's a lot also, too, you know. Um, but it, it's sitting down and putting in the sweat, you know, which again sounds sort of like tough love in a way, but this happens to be true. You know, if you want to write, write, you know, how's that for, how's that for a profundity? I love um, it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the only way, you know, and the rest, the rest is all strategy, trying to get published, that sort of thing. I mean, that's a whole other issue, but if you want to create, you sit down and create, you know, um, if there's no time in the morning, do it at night. If there's no time during the day, do it during your lunch break. It's hard. It's very, very hard. But do it. You know, just do it. There Nike. No. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Richard Clint, it's a pleasure talking with you. You have a wonderful energy. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in the future and checking out some of the stuff you've done in the past. I'm going on the web as soon as we get off the phone. Well, thank you. I've loved being on the podcast. I've loved listening to it. And I, I'm flattered to be included. Thank you so much for having me.
Take care of yourself. Okay. Thank you. Bye. One of the last times I saw my mother, 
She was in the hospital for her final stay, propped up on her bed, and she reached over and touched the short sleeve of my button-down summer shirt. Did I buy you this? she asked. She asked that question about every shirt I wore, or rather about every shirt I wore that she liked, that she thought was classy, snazzy, smart. By this late period in our lives, she was no longer supplying much, if any, of my clothing. So in this case, the correct answer would be no. But I said yes. And she was satisfied with the answer, momentarily forgetting that she was dying and focusing on more important matters, like the nice plaid shirt she bought for her son. Over the years, she bought me many shirts, plaid, striped, solid, and pants, bootlegged and bell-bottomed, and windbreakers and dress coats and peacoats and sweaters and ties, and a few hats. A late acquisition still has pride of place in my winter wardrobe. It's a black, cable-knit, 100% acrylic, basic edition sweater. I didn't really need it at the time, but I was on a visit, and my mother wanted to buy me something, partly as a sign of her independence, but mainly for the joy in buying me clothes. She was living on Social Security, on a severely limited budget, in a small, subsidized senior citizen apartment, so that acrylic sweater represented a portion of her monthly budget. Now and then she would assert her prerogative as a mother, and the bulky sweater was the result. It was so hefty that it stretched my cheap suitcase to its limit and weighed me down as I hauled it through the airport. The sweater was hot, hard to fit under a coat, and a tad scratchy. It was, however, indestructible, and many years later it's still doing cold-weather duty. My mother had been buying me clothes since I was born, beginning, I suppose, with the jumper I'm wearing in my one baby picture. There's a five- or six-year gap in my childhood photos, which I've always attributed to the pall my father's death cast when I was eight months old, but I'm not sure if that's the reason. From childhood through high school and with occasional purchases to the end of her life, my mother was my haberdasher. She loved buying me clothes just as much as she relished criticizing the clothes I bought on my own. You're not wearing that, she might ask, eyeing a pair of striped jeans that made me look like a sailor in an MGM musical, or warning me of the beatings coming my way if I wore the beret I bought through an ad in the back of Harper's magazine. She decked me out with suits, like my black First Holy Communion number, she bought that at Samter's, a somewhat snooty store, at least from our working-class south-side-of-town perspective. That store had a tailor, a consummate professional who treated all his customers, young or old, large or small, rich or poor, as if he were the Duke of Windsor stopping off in our coal town for a quick fitting. My next suit was picked up off the rack at Robert Hall, and my last suit for my high school photo, and the last suit I ever bought, as it happens, at the downtown department store where she worked as a floater, moving from, depar from department to department and taking advantage of her employee discount when she could. She bought my official garb, my Boy Scout uniform, which didn't get much use since I left the organization at the rank of tenderfoot. 
and my altar-boy vestments, which later became the symbol of my apostasy. Remember when you were an altar-boy? My mother would ask wistfully. She didn't have to worry about sports uniforms. At my prodding and pleading, she made a series of unfortunate purchases as fashions changed with the times and my whims and shifting self-image and constant movie-going. A powder-blue dickie, cowboy boots that proved so uncomfortable I wore them once or twice and shoved them under my bed, hoping that she would forget. She didn't. A faux leather leisure suit jacket, a frilly pirate shirt. Somehow we never scored a Nehru jacket. As I aged and then moved away, her purchases became less frequent, except for gifts and shirts bought on visits. My mother was something of a clothes horse herself. Her favorite store was in our neighborhood, a few blocks from our house, and the woman who owned it was named Peggy Barrett. Her name became a shorthand for fine clothes. She made trips to New York City to acquire the skirts and blouses and jackets that filled her store and my mother's closet. It was my mother's coal town version of couture. In her final illness, we knew that she was giving up on life when she no longer cared about her hair and her clothes. The last time I saw my mother, she could no longer speak, so she couldn't ask me if she bought the summer shirt I was wearing. But of course, the answer would be yes. Yes, you did, Mom. Mamma, solo per te la mia canzone vola. Mamma, sarai con me, tu non sarai più sola. Quando vi voglio bene Queste parole d'amore Che ti sospira il mio cuore Forse non so sano Happy days when you were here beside me 
Safe in the glow of your love Sent from the heavens above Nothing can ever replace The warmth of your tender embrace Oh, Mama Malaganza Per la vida non di lascio mai più Mamma Struggle, a.k.a. Gladys. Old Satchmo knew how to live in his time. And today, how much of it all has changed? The reason, the rhyme, has it been rearranged as mine? It is all so warm and strange, this struggle in my bubble. As the carpenter bees do their spring dance, eating at my outside apparatus, They, in groups of three or four, float just outside my door. One of them, I think, answers to the name Gladys. What more can I do? Through all kinds of weather What if the sky should fall Just as long as we're together It doesn't matter at all When they've all had the quarrels and parted We'll be the same as we started Just a traveling along Singing a song side by side Here, yeah, this, uh, that wasn't the... Uh, much of a job for me. I wasn't very large at all. Sir, your style doesn't make us quite single. Were you expecting maybe Elvis or Bingle? For right or for wrong, we'll string along side by side. Once my style was considered exquisite. We're only asking, what is it? Stabbed by my own flesh and blood. Now look here, I recall a time when the fans thought that I had class. Leave us not go back to the Pilgrims and Plymouth Mass. You have
I've given my pride a few blisters. Next time we get the Maguire sisters. It was only a rip. I should have stomped on your crib. Side by side. Splendid. And there you have it, episode 272 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, writer Richard Klin. Check out his new novel, Petroleum Transfer Engineer. Thank you to our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise. And these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Beastie Boys, Madeline Peru, Elvis Costello, Jerry Vale, Frank Sinatra and the McGuire Sisters, Terrence Blanchard and Branford Marsalis, too. Until next week, how about you enjoy, how about we enjoy this one? Thanks for listening.